Dr. Miller, just stop right there for one second. You are a social scientist who studies voter issues, voter security in particular. That's right. Yes. Is there any data at all in, in any of the research that you yourself have done, that the Brennan Center for Justice has done, that you are aware about, that shows voter security is at issue in a vote-by-mail system? No. The best data out there has been collected by a colleague of mine, Justin Levitt, at the Loyola Law School. Looked at the elections between 2000 and 2014, pool of a billion ballots, found 37 instances of voter fraud. One or two ballots in a given election cycle will be fraudulent. That being said, 37 ballots out of a billion tells me that this is a vanishingly rare problem. Dr. Peter Miller is a researcher at New York University's Brennan Center for Justice, an independent, nonpartisan law and policy organization that conducts and publishes rigorous research of pressing legal and policy issues. Dr. Miller is a social scientist and an expert on voting and elections. His work has been published in several peer-reviewed journals and cited by the United States Supreme Court. We are honored to host Dr. Miller as a guest who can share with us real empirical data on the lack of voter fraud in U.S. elections and the systems that affect voter turnout and equitable representation in our electorate. Dr. Miller, voting has been thrust into the public discourse, possibly more so than in any year in my living memory. And you have become the talent. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever think that was going to happen, getting into this line of research? Uh, not, not at all. A lot of what academics do is sort of work in seclusion. And, you know, we sort of count ourselves lucky if five people read an, a given article. I imagine to a certain extent, I still suffer from imposter syndrome and uh, everything else. But when I'm talking to other graduate students or people who are thinking about going to graduate school or colleagues in the office, I start to realize that they're not issues that go away. It's just, this is the terms of the debate that we're engaged in now. Let's do the best job we can. It is true. You know, research and, and history and social science are all kind of coming together in this hot soup right now. And it's certainly seemingly the most relevant issue of our time. When did you start looking at Oregon's vote-by-mail process? That was right after I graduated from college in 2006. I worked at the Voting Information Center, uh, a think tank at Reed College. It was an initiative begun by a professor of mine at Reed, Paul Gronke. Uh, and we were lucky enough to get a couple of peer-reviewed publications out even before I started graduate school. And one of those was uh, a study that specifically looked at the turnout effects of vote-by-mail in Oregon. It was a fun intellectual exercise for me, uh, just getting a start in the research world, in part because what, what we did in that paper was respond to an earlier paper that vote by mail in Oregon increased turnout by about 10 points. Uh, initially, we just thought that that was a uh, remarkably high effect. And we just wanted to see, well, can we replicate this? We went back to this earlier study. We collected what we thought was uh, the, the data that the original authors had. It turned out that there were a few elections that we included that they didn't, that we were never able uh, to reconcile. But the end of the story was that we couldn't find a significant turnout effect of vote by mail in Oregon. We sort of had to throw cold water on what we thought was a, a national discussion about vote by mail increases turnout. And at least in Oregon, 
we couldn't find any evidence of that. And did you develop any hypotheses about the reasons for that that change in finding? So the first substantive finding we found was that there was something goofy, to use a technical term, <laughs> about the, the first three vote-by-mail elections in Oregon. If you look only at the, the preceding elections and then those three elections, you do find a substantial effect of vote-by-mail in Oregon. However, if you extend that to other general and primary elections, the effect disappears. What we uh, surmised was that it's the larger electoral context of these novel uh, elections that are driving Oregonians to the polls. Correct me if I'm hearing something incorrectly, but one theory I'm hearing out of this is that uh, Oregonians are drawn to the polls when we feel like our vote counts for something. Is Oregon anomalous in that way that our voter turnout might look different than voter turnout in New Mexico when looking at uh, the effects of vote by mail? Potentially. I mean, a couple of points to raise that are, I think are salient are that electoral competition matters. The extent to which you have elections that are foregone conclusions, turnout tends to be much lower in those rates. And so the extent to which Oregon is able to produce competitive elections, uh, that's going to drive turnout. But the other thing that, uh, again, to use a, a goofy uh, technical term, Oregon is goofy compared to the rest of the country, in part because turnout in Oregon is, is high as a baseline. It was high before vote by mail was adopted, and it's it remained high afterward. I believe Oregon has a an automatic uh, registration to vote when you get your DMV license or or ID card. Um, might might that be something that play a role in voter turnout? Absolutely. The American step of registering before you're eligible to get a ballot is not uh, unique, but exceptional in at least the, the, our pure countries of advanced industrial democracies. In about 16 states, there's some form of automatic voter registration, and Oregon was one of the first in that group to adopt automatic voter registration. That being said, it, it appears to be the case that all sorts of registration reforms, whether automatic voter registration, voting or same day or election day registration, pre-registration for people who will be 18 and at the date of the election but are not now, or online voter registration, all of these to one degree or another increase turnout, which seems to indicate uh, and, and sort of confirm studies from classic political science uh, investigations in the 80s that the United States is a group of people who are predisposed to want to be involved in politics, want to be involved in the election, but it's the institutions that are sort of holding them back. You know, registering new voters seems to be an important issue in this moment because it looks like the research is showing um, that we are down new voter registrations in so many states by such a large percentage. I think the research was showing something like 38% and a majority of the states that that your center studied. Um, that shocked me. That really shocked me, in particular because this year seems to be a particularly competitive national election um, that is on the front cover of every newspaper. So why is it, Dr. Miller, that we're seeing um, such a dip in new voter registrations, and how does that affect voter turnout? I was also flabbergasted to see the numbers when I started digging through some of the state websites, and we were able to get data on 21 states of which 17 were below the benchmark of where they were in 2016, in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election. 
and they're they're down by substantial numbers. You know, so I think it's 38, 37%, 38% on average across these seven states. Uh, it, it was remarkable to me, in part because registration dictates who's who's able to vote. One way in which you can uh, determine sort of how representative the electorate is. Things like automatic voter registration, I thought were going to reduce uh, the the lagging behind 2016 numbers. But the Oregon number is remarkable in the sense that they're far below where they were in 2016 in terms of the number of people who had been added to the registration rolls in the run-up to the 2016 election far outpaces where Oregon is now at this stage in the 2020 election. One thing in the the social science that's abundantly clear is that voting is a habit-forming behavior. The question is, well, then when do people get their initial experience with voting? And automatic voter registration should hopefully move that earlier and then keep people voting for longer. But if they miss out on such a pivotal election like any presidential election, but I think there's a compelling case to be made that the 2020 election is even more compelling than your average presidential election, uh, then you end up with people who may be lost for at least an electoral cycle and perhaps more. So who who are we talking about when we talk about new voters registering? Are are these people who are newly moved into the to the state? Are they young people who have just turned eighteen? Who are we talking about? Yeah, so those are both uh, big chunks of of who's added to the the registration rules. The folks who move uh, to Oregon for one reason or another, some of whom may be moving for college, and then it's folks who become eligible to vote, whether they're. 18, and there's usually a small number of people for whom their voting rights are suspended by a court, but uh, those may be restored at another point in time. Uh, but it's generally folks who move to the state and then become eligible to vote. Okay. And of course, we have to talk about COVID, right? Because it seems like um, COVID is a, a new factor this year that is likely impacting new registrants. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. People uh, don't want to be waiting in lobbies. People don't want to be waiting in line. The idea that uh, you're going to have a bunch of people standing around waiting to access a voter tabulation machine seems weird to people nowadays in the sense that if you don't have to be uh, stuck with a group of people, you don't want to be just for fear of contracting COVID. On the other hand, where are you going to find poll workers uh, to to staff a polling place for many hours during the day, not knowing who's going to come through the door and want to be able to vote? But no one knows uh, if they're you know, carrying COVID with them when they get op- come through the door. Uh, so it's a particular risk for both people who are working at the polls and folks who are going to the polls to cast a ballot. Let's say uh, your mail isn't delivered or the ballot arrives late or uh, any number of possible snafus could take place where your only option is to deliver a ballot in person on election day. And so we're sort of stuck in this middle ground where we need have the polls available for people to be able to cast a ballot in the event that vote by mail or early voting forms uh, don't work for whatever reason as a failsafe. On the other hand, uh, if we're complying with social distancing, elections are going to have to be administered in a different manner than we've done in the past. Why don't you tell me from your perspective what benefits there are to online registration and who might still be getting left behind if there was a universal online registration available. One of the clearest advantages to an online registration system is that through the system, you can get information from the person who's trying to register to vote, you know, name, address, uh, other pertinent information, driver's license number, you know, whatever you need to confirm their identity. That can be entered into the statewide voter registration database automatically, and you can format the data with fewer errors 
uh, and in a, in a manner that's compatible with the voter registration you already have. At the same time, however, online voter registration requires that you have access to the internet. And while a lot of us take that for granted, there are parts of the country in which broadband has not yet arrived. Uh, well, then, okay, well, then one alternative, I'll just go to a public library. Well, what if the public library, the nearest one is miles down the road and you, know, you have no other reason to go to the public library. So here's a problem of, well, here we just put another barrier in way of folks that are trying to uh, exercise their, their right to participate in the election. There were um, pr primary elections that were conducted, I believe in Michigan and Arizona that were conducted online, but they didn't get much further than that. There is a sort of overarching effort to uh, adopt a, some online platform for military voters, given that the time constraints for military voters tend to be more severe than anybody else. But that effort sort of uh, was pushed aside in part because the Pentagon and the Defense Department were unable to come up with a security procedure to assure that they can both say, well, we know that Celia has voted, but we cannot identify which of the ballots in this pile is Celia's. Uh, and that became the sticking point. That being said, uh, the state of a uh, country of Estonia, excuse me, conducts their elections online, but th they only have about 300,000 registered voters. So it's uh, not too bad of a problem for them. There feels like an elephant in the room. You have used the word security so many times. Um, it's it's a relevant uh, issue and factor in almost all of these other substantive areas. Why is security in question? When you deliver a ballot in person, you're reasonably confident that the ballot that you have put in the box yourself will be counted. When you break the chain of custody with, say, an absentee ballot, that assurance is reduced. And so there is some concern that absentee votes are associated with some form of voter registration or voter participation fraud in one way or another. There are a variety of ways in which an election can be fraudulent. And it seems like a, a lot of the national attention has focused on absentee ballots as one venue by which uh, fraud can be entered into an election. Dr. Miller, just stop right there for one second. You are a social scientist who studies voter issues, voter security in particular. That's right. Yes. Is there any data at all in, in any of the research that you yourself have done, that the Brennan Center for Justice has done, that you are aware about, that shows voter security is at issue in a vote-by-mail system? No. The best data out there has been collected by a colleague of mine, Justin Levitt, at the Loyola Law School looked at the elections between 2000 and 2014, pool of a billion ballots, found 37 instances of voter fraud. One or two ballots in a given election cycle will be fraudulent. That being said, 37 ballots out of a billion tells me that this is a vanishingly rare problem. And, and coming back to the example of studying Oregon's vote by mail system and Oregon now being the center of attention, you said that by and large, Oregon's vote by mail system has resulted in successful elections. What do you mean by that? Are they able to avoid costly recounts? Are they able to engage more of the public? Are they able to determine a winner of an election or the passage of a ballot measure or something related? And in that sense, Oregon elections have accomplished the task that's before them. And so if we expand um, on that and look at the national level, and we're talking about counting votes uh, if they're 
input by mail across the entire country, um, is it feasible that we'll still be able to achieve all those goals? The goal of engaging the public, the goal of counting all of the ballots, and the goal of choosing a winner, which which I believe has been called into question that if we if we implement this on a national level, it's going to overwhelm our system. It will cripple um, our ability to achieve those goals, and we will simply not be able to choose a winner. I think there, there's cause for concern in the sense that mail voting is far more common in the Western United States than in other regions of the country. Up to 60% of the ballots that are cast in Western states are cast by mail. The Midwest is the, the next most common region, and only about 15% of ballots are cast by mail in Midwestern states. You know, the, the Western states have gotten good at this just because they've had to in terms of sorting the mail, getting an efficient process, scanning ballots, and so forth. It's, it's, I think it's a catch-up process for other states in the country. So I guess if you had... One wish, Dr. Miller, <laughs> about how voting by mail might look um, in this year's uh, national election in November. What do you think your one wish would be? It's difficult to, to have a silver bullet, given that there are so many ways in which election administration can go right, but then so many ways in which an error can be introduced to the process. One thing that I, I constantly go back to, though, is that the, the U.S. and election administration is so decentralized. Uh, and partly this is a strength in the sense that the, the idea that some foreign country could fabricate ballots and uh, manipulate the election that way is absurd, uh, given that there are uh, thousands of what we call ballot styles. One county might have a different recording software than another. And as a consequence, the design of the ballot is different. Being able to keep track of all of these details is you know, a, a Herculean task. That being said, the downside to such a decentralized system is that you end up with procedures and processes that vary place to place. The, but the, the awareness that the electoral rules vary so much, even from state to state and even within states, uh, I think is one source of confusion. The, but the extent to which we can push closer to say, one federal standard is also going to push up against other constitutional protections uh, that the states have autonomy when it comes to the conduct of elections. In the United States, voting is my choice. I have a right to vote, thanks to the 19th Amendment, but I don't have to vote. And I have heard, you know, so many uh, people say, you know, I don't really care about this election or I don't, you know, I, I have too much going on. I'm too busy or, you know, my vote's not really going to count. And so I'm not going to vote. And in this country, there's no punishment for that. I'm not obligated to make my voice heard. How many democratic countries um, have that system where it's a it's a person's choice whether to exercise that right or not? The, the overwhelming majority, about 20 countries that have some form of compulsory voting. And what does compulsory voting mean? Are there different types of compulsory voting or does it just simply mean you're required to vote? Yeah, so there, there are a range of ways in which compulsory voting can be implemented. One uh, nice example is Australia, where if you, you don't cast a ballot in an election, uh, you will get a letter from the state saying, by the way, there was an election and you did not participate. Can you explain why you didn't? Uh, and if you don't respond to that letter, 
state may uh, initiate a legal proceeding against you and call you to court uh, and fine you for abstaining in an election. But then you have other countries, uh, like Belgium, for example, also has compulsory voting, but the uh, state prosecutor's office has announced that they're not going to fine anyone for failing to vote. But the, the weird thing in Belgium uh, is that uh, turnout has not declined after that announcement was made. So you still have 85 to 90 percent of Belgians voting in any given election. How does that impact um, voter turnout? And in particular, how does that impact the number of people voting who might otherwise be excluded because of some socioeconomic status? The, the obvious explanation is that if you have 90 to 95 percent of the people voting, as is the case in Australia, you can argue that every demographic group is representing, like, represented in the electorate like they are in the national uh, population. Uh, so one consequence is that you tend to see representation of interests that are more closely aligned with the people who vote, meaning the national population. Uh, some of my own research uh, done with a couple of colleagues uh, looks at the representation of the interests of the poor, uh, say the bottom quintile of a given country, and we find that the addition of compulsory voting rules reduces the salience of that gap in representation, meaning the interests of the, the poor are at least heard at a higher rate in compulsory voting systems than in voluntary voting systems. Interesting. So do do we have a, a number or a sense of what percentage of that kind of lowest socioeconomic status, the, the poor in our country, turn out to vote or are excluded for, for some reason uh, from participating in our elections? It's difficult to say determinatively, but what we can look at is, uh, say, in the U.S., maybe 55 to 60 percent of people vote. So you're looking at... Uh, 45 to 40 percent of the people who don't vote. In that group, you're looking at uh, what the, the socioeconomic breakdown of that group. Uh, but there's still a lot of chunks, a lot of people within that group that are not voting for whatever reason. And that could include uh, voter registration problems, uh, a problem getting to the polls, a problem getting time off of work. All of these uh, explanations, though, tend to cluster and say the bottom quintile of the, the socioeconomic distribution. What appears to be the case in the data is that even reforms like election day or same day registration tend to increase turnout among the people who have the second to the bottom level of educational attainment. Folks that say have at least a high school education. Even with this very permissive voter regime, you end up with people at the bottom, the folks that don't have a high school education for, for one reason or another, are more or less excluded from the system even when you have a, a relatively permissive means uh, to, to gain access to the political system. Well, um, I have a couple of wrap-up questions I wanted to ask you. One question we're asking every guest, um, do you have a voting ritual? Is there something you do every time you vote that sort of gets you in the groove of participating in our democracy? The first time I, I voted, I, I think it was a mayoral primary in my hometown, and I was late to class in high school, and it was an election day, and I was running down the hall, and I saw, you know, here's the polls. And I knew I, that was my polling place, and I thought, well, they're not going to kick me out of class if I show up with an I voted sticker. So I stopped, turned, voted in the election, and then went to class with my sticker on. It was like, and I showed up late, of course, and they're like, you can't come in, you're late. And I said, no, I, was, I, I voted. I was in the election. Uh, but most of my uh, experience after that has been voting by mail, uh, whether 
uh, just getting the ballot uh, wherever I was uh, at home or when I was in college or uh, I, I've been abroad for a couple of presidential elections. And so that's my uh, ritual is I actually sit down and read ballot. And increasingly, I, I have to become acquainted with all sorts of uh, ballot measures that I didn't know about or uh, candidates that I didn't know who were running or candidates that I was like, oh, I, I know that guy. I he should have told me he was running. So it, it's just the, the ritual of sitting down and taking my time with the ballot rather than being rushed uh, to vote while I'm trying to do something else. Do you have a favorite thing that you have seen or heard about that by yourself or by somebody else that has caused someone else to vote? So th this is a third hand anecdote, but I, I tell all my students this, the, the, the movie Charlie Wilson's War, I think has an excellent anecdote where Charlie Wilson is this flamboyant character in Congress but at one point, he tells the story of when he fell in love with America, when uh, his neighbor killed his dog or was a county commissioner in Texas or something. And so Charlie Wilson's like, well, in a democracy, you have to be accountable for the things you do in office. I disagree fundamentally with you killing my dog, so I'm going to run against you. And he would tell people, you know, I don't mean to swear your vote, but that guy killed my dog. <laughs> and uh, but it, I mean, it's it's a hokey story, but it I, I think it's... It, demonstrates an essential character of this in the sense that elections have consequences. And if you're not happy with the status quo or you are happy with the status quo, you have a motivation to make sure that your voice is heard. Well, and maybe now I'll uh, have Charlie Wilson's story to share to <laughs> motivate others. <laughs> well, Dr. Miller, I very much appreciate your time. And I, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Well, thank you. This has been an episode of Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality, a new podcast series from the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association in collaboration with the Oregon Historical Society. We focus on current and historical barriers to voting. Hit subscribe to check out our episodes and visit our website, voting-now.com. Celia Howes is the lead host and executive producer. Frayne Masters is our creative director, Miranda Schaefer, our producer, and Gabriel Granillo is our senior editor. Special thanks to Fiona McCann.